Coming back at you with another episode of the Collegiate Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Alberti, as always. And this week, we got some men's soccer who will be facing Penn State in the first round of the NCAA tournament this Sunday. Then we go along to women's lacrosse, who continues their tear into a 12-game winning streak heading into the Atlantic 10 tournament this Friday against Davidson. Um, they actually beat St. Bonaventure 27-2 last weekend. And then we ended off with some men's lacrosse who has a very important game against Delaware after beating Fairfield last weekend to secure their spot in the CAA postseason. So hope you all enjoy and stay tuned. The time is coming closer and closer to when the UMass men's soccer team will actually be playing in its first game of the NCAA tournament since 2017 against Penn State in Greensboro, North Carolina on Sunday at 1 p.m. Um, but before that, I'm, I'm here joined by Sophie Weller and Pablo Caseno, and I want to talk about the, the story that you two just wrote. It's really um, an interesting story on Fran O'Leary, the Minutemen's head coach, um, and talking about his coaching philosophy and kind of the history of this UMass team in terms of comparing 2021 to 2017. But I guess I'll start off with Sophie in that 2021 to 2017 comparison and how these two teams both coached under Fran O'Leary differentiate and if they're similar in any ways. Yeah. So uh, Fran talked about how the 2017 team was more relying on shutouts and how they were a more defensive team. Uh, Typically, well, they had some high scoring games. They would typically win by just one goal, allowing none by the other team. However, this 2021 team has just been more offensively dominant, uh, scoring multiple ga- uh, goals per game and just really being able to control play in the top third of the field. Yeah, and um, I think that 2017 team did actually lose in the first round to Colgate. Um, and Pablo, I guess another thing that I want to talk about with you regarding 2021 specifically is the fact that this has easily been probably the craziest year for any soccer team in college soccer. There's probably some exceptions, but just like on a national scale, every team was affected by the pandemic in one way or another. How did Fran use his coaching philosophy of just enjoying the game of soccer, as you two put it, to kind of allow his team to be able to still thrive in this setting? Yeah. So coach Fran, um, he really focuses more on on or he cares about winning right but he tries to make the best out of every every season he's ever been or every team he's ever been a part of um and that didn't change with covid he, you know he, he called it the covid cup right um and <laughs> and um you know uh he he gave his his players an out he was like look guys like if you guys you know if you guys can't can't deal with this and and you know with the whole COVID situation and, and just staying so, so strict to the guidelines um then you know it's okay you guys can leave the program because he, he realized it was better you know for some of these guys it would be okay and there'd be no repercussions or anything um but none of them left you know they all trusted him and they all stayed super strict they didn't get any food out of uh UMass dining they don't go out anywhere and they just you know they they trusted Fran and they trusted the program and you know, like Sophie said, they're they're a super offensive team, uh, talented team. Um, they have 26 goals on the season in 11 games, and a two point uh, two point uh, like basically a two two goals a game average. Um, and you know, they're they're top 10 offense in the country, which is which is just crazy in this this crazy season, like you said, Joey, uh, to be doing this kind of stuff. And I want to ask about the history that. 
Fran has kind of brought to this Minutemen team. He was signed in 2015, but he had a little bit of a storied career before that, and he had um, a very, a very good one at that. And I guess I just want to ask you two about how he was able to develop these coaching philosophies in different places, like such as enjoying the game and everything like that, and being able to have so much success before he was a Minuteman coach. Yeah, so he began as first he started as an assistant coach. And then he moved into being a head coach for a division three school uh, where he moved around to a few division three schools, but remained. Then he moved up to division one where um, he had very successful seasons until he ultimately went to become an assistant coach in the MLS where, and he was also uh, the director of player recruitment. And he remained there for two years for Toronto FC and after leaving, that was when he joined the UMass team. Yeah, and I think um, I think after twenty seasons, I feel like he's just he like knows what's what's best for a team. And um, or I don't want to say that, but his philosophy has worked. I mean, he has eighteen winning seasons in twenty eight years, which is pretty impressive. And um, with a couple of those D three uh, teams, he was a part of. Um, they went to the to the final four, the NCAA um, final four. So um, I think he's always stressed in, in the times I've talked to, to him. He's like, you know, why, why are we going to change anything um, this season, like game plan or, or what we do? Because what we've been doing uh, this season has been, you know, has been working and, and they've only lost one game. So I think I feel like that's the mentality he brings to each of his programs is like, you know, um, just just not changing things if 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 it's working you know if it, if it works don't I mean if it's working then then why why do anything else and Pablo I know we talked about this last week when we were with Freddie but I feel like it's very um, important to just talk about it a little more again just for the fact that this game is in, in a few days on Sunday against Penn State um, and another fact that I brought up was the fact that or you you kind of mentioned to me is the fact that Jeff Cook the head coach at Penn state was actually one of the first assistants that Fran hired when he was um, at his head coaching stint in Dartmouth. Um, Also, another thing that I want to bring up um, is the fact that Fran O'Leary has been to two final fours before coming and stepping foot on UMass. So he's definitely a credible coach to say the least, but now we got a little bit of a, a mentor versus the student type of matchup going on here with Penn state and Jeff cook, and then Fran O'Leary and UMass, how do you two see this game playing out? I guess, Sophie, I'll start with you and how you see UMass faring in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Well, first, I think it's very impressive that they've made it into the tournament on really their performance alone. They weren't, they did not comp- compete in the A-10 tournament this year with Fordham ultimately dominating the league. But because of their ranking, they were able to get an at-large bid and I think that really just goes to show how talented of a, of a team it is they have this year and the offensive strengths. And I really think that in this game, if they can keep up with their, with what's been going on all season with that offensive domination, and they can really generate those opportunities and put balls in the back of the net and they can win this game and move on. Yeah. And um, like, to echo what Sophie said it's you know they made that they got an at-large bid and um you know they went toe-to-toe with a a great program in Virginia Virginia Tech so um Penn State is is a great great program um 
Coach O'Leary, you know, he raved about Jeff Cook and that team. Um, and they have some some real game breakers on that team. Um, but I think UMass does as well, you know. And um, I think, like, like I said before, I think Coach O'Leary is going to stick to what they've been doing this season. And they're going to look to to go out there and, and dominate offensively. Um, and, you know, they're just going to trust their solid defense and their amazing goalkeeper, Marvin Dorchin, who's been great all season. So I, I, you know, I think it's going to be a really good game. And I think UMass does have a chance to win. Also, I think it's it's fair to mention the fact that talking in terms of Fordham and the Atlantic 10, they lost to Fordham. Uh, by one goal in the first time they met. And then they had a draw in double overtime. I think it was one-to-one or two-to-two or something along those lines. So they are right there in terms of competition with Fordham um, and who is one of the higher-level teams in all of men's soccer and in college men's soccer. But Pablo and Sophie, thank you for the time as always. And for everyone listening out there, go read their story on Fran. It's, it's a great story and you'll learn a lot about this season in comparison to the 2017 season and just his history as a coach and his philosophy and everything along those lines. So stay tuned and we'll definitely have a podcast coming next week to talk about this game against Penn State. To anyone that was following the UMass women's lacrosse team, it didn't really come to a surprise that they ended the, the season on a 12-game winning streak, going perfect in the Atlantic 10 at 8-0. and um, And now they, they see themselves against Davidson this Friday at 4 p.m. in Amherst. But before we get to that game, we should get to this past weekend. I'm joined by Freeman Alfano and Dylan Corey. And the first game of the weekend was last Friday against St. Bonaventure, which was probably the craziest game of the year for the Minute Women, defeating the Bonnies 27-2. And... I mean, that was the, the highest output of goals for the men and women all season. And then that was the lowest they've allowed all season easily with two. Um, actually, no, they, they allowed only four to Duquesne, but um, still winning in complete dominating fashion. But I guess I'll start with you, Dylan, and the records. You wrote about the records that they broke. Can you just um, tell, tell the wonderful people what type of records they did break on that Friday game? Yeah, so the the 27 that they scored was a, a season high, and it was also a, a school high. Um, that was the most that UMass, the program, has ever scored. Um, so that was really impressive. And then um, I never actually did the research, but they had 14 different goal scorers in that game, which I feel like should be some type of record. Uh, it's got to be close if it's not actually. Um, but then, I mean, like just going through like like the box score of that game was just embarrassing. Um, they were just not letting up on on St. Bonaventure uh, really on defense is, is where it started is what coach talked about. But I mean, like you look at like the shots, they had 46 to the Bonnie's nine um, and then like on goal, 39 to the Bonnie's five. So like St. Bonaventure wasn't even getting an attempt, uh, wasn't even getting a shot on offense. Um, and that was really what Massachusetts has done well all year, you know, they've defended really well and then they have plenty of firepower on offense to, uh, to blow teams out. And Freeman, I know you wrote about their relentless attack on offense, especially in that Friday game against the Bonnies. Um, what type of approach did they take to that game to allow them to get 27 goals? Well, it wasn't really just their approach on offense, that attack mentality. It was really, Overall, they're just attack approach and aggressiveness on both sides of the ball, including defense. One of the things that really stuck out from the start of the game was the way they were attacking the St. Bonaventure midfielders and attackers 
when they were in the middle third of the field as St. Bonaventure was trying to mount their own attacks to no avail as, as shown by the score of the game. Every time St. Bonaventure would try to come across the field with the ball, they'd be met by two, sometimes even three minute woman defenders who would essentially swarm the St. Bonaventure player and would be forced to throw it away, resulting in the ball going back to UMass and usually another goal, which was really lent itself to some of the stats and records that Dylan talked about. And I think one of the biggest ones that he did not mention there was the fact that St. Bonaventure, even though they scored, they had just one shot on goal in the first half. One shot on goal in the first 30 minutes of the game, which in a lacrosse game where you're scoring five, six, seven goals a half, let alone shots, is just unbelievable. And it's a testament to that attack mentality and dominance they really displayed throughout the entirety of the game, not just on offense, but in all phases of the, of the uh, field of play. And that and, wasn't even just, it wasn't even one shot on goal. It was it was one shot total. Like, like they didn't have other shot attempts. Like they just had, they got one shot attempt off in the entire first half. Like that's just insane when you can defend a team like that. I feel like a broken record always bringing this up, but I just feel like it's so noteworthy every single time. Caitlin Petro in that same Bonaventure game had 24 draw controls. Freeman, I don't know if that breaks the record or if the record is still like 25 or something, but 24 draw controls when um, she, and now she leads the NCAA by even more than she did before. She averages 14.29 a game. The second highest is Maddie Jenner on Duke who averages 10.06 and that margin, I think, um, separates like that two point or that 4.23 um, difference right there is the difference between I think it's second and like somewhere in the high teens like 17 or something stupid like that but <clears throat> I think obviously Caitlin Petro has had a massive impact on this season and probably one of the main um, benefactors or main reasons that UMass was able to defeat and demolish St. Bonaventure, 27 to two. And I understand we can't really talk much about the St. Joseph's game, even though it was the closest game of the year or not the year, but since the beginning of the year for this minute women team, um, because it wasn't really streamed or anything like that. So you two couldn't really watch it, but I guess we can move on to this Davidson game in the semifinal of the Atlantic 10 tournament. Davidson only coming in with three losses, one being to Richmond who, is the best team that's not named UMass in the Atlantic 10. And I'd assume if UMass wins, they'll see them in the, in the championship. Another one coming to Coastal Carolina, and then another one coming to Duke, who is one of the blue chip teams in all of women's college lacrosse. But what do you two anticipate to see from this matchup? And likely UMass is the um, toughest matchup in the Atlantic 10 so far. Oh, I think without a doubt at this point, because – the two teams they haven't played this year in the Atlantic 10 uh, that are noteworthy have been Richmond, who is also one of the top teams in the conference and is on the other side of this bracket, and then Davidson as well, who we just alluded to. And these are, like I said, two of the best teams in the A-10, have been really two of the best 25, 30 teams in the country this year, and as, as a result have been ranked. They all come in with really, really great records. Um, the only thing with Davidson is they don't really match the, the real scoring explosion and output as UMass does, but they really bring it on defense too. And 
I believe they have one of the top scoring defenses in the country at this point, I believe top 20 or so. And as a result, it's just going to be a very, very big strength on strength game, which is really interesting considering normally in a normal year, we would see these two teams face off. I believe their game might've been postponed this year or just with the shortened season, they weren't able to play, but it's really going to be a big strength on strength game and should be an interesting battle considering they haven't faced each other this season. Yeah, it, um, I think it definitely will be, like Freeman said, uh, their closest game, at least since UConn. Um, those UConn games were incredible to watch, both of them going to overtime. Uh, I don't know if you're going to beat that, but um, definitely their closest conference matchup. And, and something to watch is we were talk, kind of talking about uh, Petro a little bit there. Um, and she is like, I think, 24 draw controls away from uh, the most ever uh, in a single season in NCAA history. So um, this, if, if they can win this, this first game um, and make it to the, to the championship, then um, she's almost guaranteed to, to have that, which is, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, this should make for a very interesting game for both teams. Davidson um, coming off of a win over VCU, but just more recently the loss to Richmond, who is, according to the Davidson website, is ranked 12th in the country at the time of that loss. Richmond beat them 11 to or 15 to 11. My apologies, but um, yeah, I, I mean, this is going to be definitely and surely the most challenging competition that the middlemen have had to face since UConn and BC, which was earlier in the year, beating UConn um, or splitting those two games, um, each of them going into overtime and then losing to BC. But Freeman and Dylan, I appreciate the time as always. And we're going to have a really interesting weekend because I don't know, we might be able to catch up in time for another podcast before the Atlantic 10 championship against Richmond, but it's not, it's not certain, but that'd be cool if we could, but if not, we'll definitely talk next week about the two games. And I'd assume that if they don't even make it or don't even win the Atlantic 10 tournament, they will get an at-large bid in the NCAA tournament. But Freeman and Dylan, thank you as always for the time and we'll talk soon. Last Saturday, you saw the Minutemen defeating Fairfield on the road 21-14, which was their highest output of goals in any game since 2001, as Colin McCarthy, who is absent today, wrote about uh, where they scored 23 against Boston College in 2001. But I'm joined by Ben Still and Carson Depp. And guys, I, I guess I just want to start off by the dominant offensive performance and who really stood out in this game in terms of offense to allow the Minutemen to get back on track after a three-game losing streak and get them that many points? Um, yeah, uh, I would say one of the biggest contributors recently has been uh, Kevin Tobin, normally midfield. He's had to step into more of an attack role um, recently, and the teams really needed it. Uh, Towson, they had their lowest um, goal output of the season, only six goals, um, and he really stepped up. He had um, three goals and six assists as the most points, nine points um, for a, a UMass player since 2013. Uh, and he's just really stepped up recently, 17 points in three games. Uh, and he's just, when the team has needed it, obviously he's been huge. Um, but as, as Carson could tell us, uh, he's not been the only person that stepped up. Yeah, so obviously Tobin's been huge, like you said, Ben. Uh, we also saw Gabe Prosick step up big time in the Fairfield game. He had six goals and then one assist, so he career high, seven total points. He played really well along with the rest of the team, but 
I think apart from those two guys stepping up in the Fairfield win, I think the whole team kind of stepped up. You can just kind of see it. Obviously, it's why they scored the most goals they had in 20 years, but just their ball movement and um, their efficiency on offense looked really smooth. Yeah, uh, off of that, Carson, I just want to mention another thing that I noticed while reading Colin's story is the fact that 11 different players scored for UMass, which is maybe the highest output since 2015 or something along those lines. So everyone getting involved and everyone kind of does have to step up in terms of offensive production because of the absence of Chris Connolly, the senior. Is he a senior or a grad student? I don't one of the two he's it's his last year in essence. And um, he's been an impactful player last year and the year before and everything like that. And so obviously they, they finally stepped up in ways that you've seen on paper against Fairfield. But I, I feel like if I'm not mistaken, Canell has been talking about like needing to step up in, in his absence. Uh, yes. Um, he actually uh, talked about how big, Kevin Tobin has been recently um, having to step into that attacking role with Chris out. Um, obviously, Chris has led the team in points the last two years, so really just a huge offensive piece missing for them. Um, and I think that that was really what part of the reason was that they were hurting on that three-game uh, losing streak. Um, but as you can see, they did a much better job at uh, spreading the ball around. Against Towson, I believe they only had three assists and Obviously, Kevin Tobin had six assists by himself on uh, last Saturday against Fairfield. And I think that that's been a big factor. Um, just people stepping up and really being focused. Um, and it's going to have to continue if they want this success to continue. Yeah, so when I talked to Canelo before the Fairfield game, he said that a big reason for that three-game losing streak he felt was the team playing really inconsistent. And he said that's kind of he felt like they've been playing like that ever since Conley went down with the injury. And so I feel like we saw them kind of not play as inconsistent that they've been playing over that three game skid against the Fairfield game. And a lot of guys stepped up and kind of showed what they're able to do and fill those different roles that Conley filled for the offense. We saw multiple guys step up like Tobin, Prosick, and also Iran have also been big contributors filling in that gap that uh, Conley left. Now the Minutemen find themselves Friday at 5 p.m. in Delaware against the CAA leader, I guess you could say, in, in the, the, with the best record in the CAA in Delaware to cap off their regular season. And UMass actually bumped up from fifth place last week before the Fairfield game to third due to the fact of a loss from Hostra and Towson. Um, so UMass is four and three currently in the CAA standings or four and three CAA record. Hofstra and Towson are both three and four. And Ben, as we were talking about beforehand, it gets really tricky if UMass loses and Towson and Hofstra both win. But we also mentioned that it's not likely for Hofstra to win because of Drexel and the fact that they're on a six game winning streak. But how or what are the odds of UMass kind of taking taking a win away from Delaware in the season finale, noting that UMass is coming off arguably their best game of the season, at least from an offensive standpoint, but also with the fact that Delaware is the best team in the CAA, arguably. Um, so I think the biggest factor in this game uh, is going to come down to actually the defensive side for UMass, because uh, Delaware has 
we saw against Hofstra for UMass, um, the big difference in the game they won against Hofstra versus the one they lost was slowing down Ryan Tierney, uh, who averages five points a game for Hofstra. Um, Delaware has three people who all average more than five points per game. They have Mike Robinson, who has 39 goals in 10 games this year. It's uh, second in the country in total goals. Charlie Kitchen has 49 uh, points in nine games. And Ty Kurtz, is the, he's then the third most impressive guy on the team with 45 points in nine games. But he still averages just as many points as Ryan Tierney did. And we saw Tierney was basically the biggest factor in winning that game for Hofstra against UMass. So I think slowing down those three guys is just going to be absolutely the biggest factor. But um, the Minutemen really, it seems tough at times this year. They were three and four at one point, but they've done a good job on the defensive side. And with those three losses um, by one goal, they could just as easily be seven and one right now and right right atop the CAA with Drexel. I'm curious to see what you think uh, the keys will be on uh, on Friday, Carson. I'm definitely going to agree with you that I think defense is going to be a huge key to the game. But I also just feel like it's another CAA game, and every CAA game is super close and super competitive. But I think another big key would also be if UMass just doesn't beat themselves with penalties. We kind of saw them do that in the – Towson game especially in the second half and that's why they really fall behind but every other game that like you said Ben they had three losses by one goal and they've all been super close and super competitive so I feel like if UMass doesn't get themselves in penalty trouble then they'll have a good chance of pulling this one out. I also want to mention the fact that Delaware averages the least goals allowed per game in the CAA. Massachusetts is actually second in that so I would like to make a claim with my little lacrosse knowledge, but I'd still like to make a claim with the fact that offense could be just as important. Obviously they do have those three threats that you talked about, Ben, on the offensive side, but in terms of the UMass offense, they scored 21 and they obviously played their best game of the year, but that was also against easily the worst team in the CAA in Fairfield. And they're now 0-7 in the conference and 2-8 and overall. So they weren't ever really much of a threat, it feels like. And before that, UMass... As, you, as one of you two brought up, I forget who brought it up, but just the fact that they scored six goals in the game before against Hofstra, was it? Against Towson. And then they scored 11 against Drexel and Hofstra. So the goal output hasn't been impressive as of late, but if they can continue what they have been able to without Chris Conley in this Delaware game, uh, like they did in Fairfield, I think they seem to have somewhat of a shot, but it obviously comes down to the defensive side and stopping that three-headed monster that they have. But uh, any final thoughts on where you see UMass ending up when it comes to the CAA tournament and how that all fares out before we we finally realize what's happening after next week? Well, I just was hoping to say um, after last week, it was looking kind of bleak. Um, They were in fifth. And I mean, now they control their own destiny. And I think Honestly, this team is really, really talented on uh, just just everywhere on the field. We just saw Jeff Trainer just get drafted in the third round of the PLL uh, draft. Um, obviously, this team has the talent to beat anybody in the CAA. Um, so you can't count them out of any, any matchup, um, whether it be on Friday or in the CAA tournament. 
Yeah, I'm definitely going to agree with you, Ben. This is a really talented lacrosse team. And we, when we've talked to Canelo before, he said that there have been a lot of games where he feels like the team hasn't played to their full potential. And maybe we got a little bit of a glimpse of that in that previous Fairfield matchup. So if they can really get clicking and get going as a team against this um, really high-powered Delaware offense, then I think it's going to be an interesting game Friday. Yep. And as I previously said, the game will be played in Delaware at 5 p.m. on Friday. Uh, so tune in if you can or follow along. I know I'd, I'd assume at least two or three of you or maybe all three of you will have a story up after that just because of the implications going into the CAA tournament and the postseason in general next weekend. So Ben and Carson, as always, appreciate the time. And we'll definitely catch up next week to talk about where they lie going into the CAA tournament.